Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. So just to give you a little bit of an overview about last week, we, um, we talked about the personal cost of ministry, and I think it's so important because you know, we can study the Bible, we could you know, build ourselves up, we could try to understand and prove to the naysayers why we believe what we believe, and all that stuff is great, and then you have the human component. And then you have working with people, you have the rebellion, you have the, um, you know, the confusion, you have the uh, people try to make fun and all that kind of stuff. So there's a personal component to ministry, we know that. And even within or among the church body, uh, the Apostle Paul had some issues with the Galatians. Uh, and I just urge you to get that if you haven't, because it really opens up that area of ministry that people don't want to talk about. Personal hurts, personal issues, things like that. Today we're going to look at Really, this is going to be the, the crescendo in this epistle. This is going to be, uh, the Apostle Paul uses this allegorical argument, okay, based on what happened in Genesis in the Old Testament, to make his airtight case for salvation is by grace, the grace of God. It's a gift of God through faith. It's not of ourselves, uh, lest any man should boast. And it's going to be probably the pinnacle of the theology and the doctrinal and stuff, so... Uh, bear with me if you're here, maybe new to the church or new to the Bible, because once we get over this hump, it's going to be just a lot more fun. We're going to look at practical Christian living. What does the Bible say about what does society say? Are, are, they, uh, are they at odds with each other? So, so this morning, I'm going to try to make it palatable. I'm going to try to make it understandable. But um, in the preceding or in the succeeding Sundays, we are going to kind of coast and really be able to absorb a lot of the rest of what he's saying in the last two chapters. So stick with me for pragmatic Christian living. Okay, starting in verse 21, 421, the Apostle Paul says, tell me, he's speaking to the, the Galatians. The Galatians started out good. They understood salvation by grace uh, through faith. And then these false teachers start coming in, and this is what would happen back in those days. They'd be like traveling teachers, and they'd set up shop, and they were good speakers. And people would gather around and listen to them in the amphitheaters and on the street corners and stuff. So these false teachers come in and they start really poisoning the Galatian church, this young church, with these false doctrines saying, well, it's great that you're saved by grace, but you really have to keep the law of Moses. You really have to be circumcised. You really have to keep the Sabbath. And they put all this burden on the Christians. And Paul finds out about this and he writes this epistle to the Galatians trying to clear all this stuff. So there's a little context for you. So he says, to me, tell, he says to them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, or the servant, the other by the free woman. He, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman according to the promise. He's speaking about the sons. Hagar was the bondwoman, she had the son Ishmael. Uh, Sarah was the free woman, had the son Isaac. So again, remember, this is an allegory. He's taking a, a true story, a true account, and he's, he's get, telling, teaching us a spiritual truth through it. 
He says, these things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who do not travail, for the desolate has many more children than she, has, than she who has a husband. So I read this and I said, all right, Lord, you're going to have to help me out because I understand this, but it's a little cryptic. It's a little, you know, it's, it's a little hard to, to get through, especially if somebody's not really familiar with the Bible. So here goes. This is the last portion really here of what's called soteriology or the study of salvation. And again, we can look at what he's saying and saying, well, this happened 2,000 years ago. I, I don't get it. Um, it's not relevant to me. I've got my own problems today. But here's where it is relevant, okay? Paul's saying, I mean, it's anybody here this morning, all you people that I'm looking at, the balcony and the seats, are, are you saved? Do you know you're going to heaven? If not, do you know you can know? Do you know that it's really all the work was done by Jesus? All you have to do is believe. Okay, so let's put our books away and let's go home. We're done for the day. It's very simple. But you, you know as well as I know, especially if you've been to other teachings in other churches, just like the Galatians, that people will tell you, well, you, you can't be saved unless you're baptized. Baptism is a good thing. We, we do baptisms uh, quarterly, uh, sometimes five times, six times a year. It's behind there. Baptism is great, but it doesn't save you. Some people will say, well, you have to uh, give money and so much money. Some people will say you have to light candles. Some people will say, and, and then they'll have all these rules that they want to dump on you. So there's no, really no difference than what happened with the Galatian church and what happens with the church today in America. Because you can run into any church and they'll say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to Pastor Joe. We have a long list of things that you need to follow. So does the Galatians affect you this morning? You bet it does. We may not be talking about circumcision or, or keeping the Sabbath, but we'll talk about the things that we just discussed. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus was speaking to another person who was crucified next to him, and he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord knew that that man in that moment trusted in Jesus while he was being crucified, and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The Romans didn't undo the nail so the guy could get baptized. The Romans didn't undo the nail so the guy could take communion or, get, or write a check to the church. F from just belief in Jesus, that's why that's in the Scripture. That's the hope that it gives us, okay? So make sure we got that, <laughs> that set. Okay, so I'm not going to read Genesis 12 all the way through 21, but I'll just reference what happened and what he's referring back to. So you have this situation. Abraham, the patriarch, he marries Sarah, or Sarai, and becomes Sarah. God promised in his timing, and they were getting older in years, that you guys are going to have a son. And from this son, the son of promise, It'll be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then the 12 tribes of Israel, and then through that, the line of Moses, the line of Jesus. Pretty impressive what he was going to do with Abraham. But hey, just like us, the time is ticking. The years are ticking on. We're getting older. Lord, we're waiting for your, for your thing here, and it's not happening. Sarah's still barren. Sarah and Abraham, here's where the problem comes in. They become impatient with God's plan. So Sarah has this great idea, I say this facetiously, she talks her husband into going into her maidservant. Sarah's maidservant is Hagar. And to actually take her as a second wife and have a baby with her. 
because, you know, God's plan's taken too long. You could imagine the problems <laughs> that it caused in that family. And let me just stop for a minute. So let me take a, a story, thousands of year, years old, and bring it up to speed to 2016. It doesn't matter. People are people. It is always a bad idea to run ahead of God's plans. It's always a bad idea to tweak God's plans in any, any way. You know, you read the Bible, you pray, you know what the Lord's speaking to you if you've been uh, walking with the Lord for long enough. And you know, brothers and sisters, that it's a gamble. Even if we go to tweak God's plan, you know what, Lord, I like 95% of what you're saying, but let me just add this 5%. What if we did that with salvation? It would nullify what Jesus did on the cross. So Abraham marries probably a younger woman, Hagar. They have a baby, Ishmael. Now Sarah is still barren. Okay, you can just imagine the problems that this is bringing into the household. It's like, Sarah, were you, were you testing him? You know, what, what was up with that idea? And Abraham, did you really think that this was going to work out great and there was going to be peace in the home? Come on. But the really cool thing about this is that people are people. Even the giants of faith that we read about in the scripture were human. And they made mistakes. So in 2016 in New Jersey, tell me, convince me that God can't use you. If he could use these two, he could use you and I. Now, I'm not picking on them because if I was in that situation, I might have done something stupid or even worse. It's just how we are as people when we're not, we're not walking. And that's the whole thing. Christianity is talk about as a walk. I'm having difficulties days walking, but in a spiritual sense, we walk with God, okay? It's a daily thing that we do, all right? So Abraham, of course, loves Ishmael, but, but what happens? God says, okay, Abraham and Sarah, now I'm ready to give you the son of promise. Wait a minute, God. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. And, and Abraham even says, here's Ishmael. Like he... Abraham was always respectful to God. In a respectful way, he's like, but like God, like God didn't see Ishmael was there? Here is Ishmael. Let him be the one. God's like, no, that's not my plan. My plan was for you guys to have a baby, even in your old age, to show the miracle of what I'm doing, and that's going to be Isaac. And here's what, an, an amazing thing, is that to the spiritually untrained eye, when God's plans finally come to fruition, it looks like he's the obstructionist. Now, of course, we know that's not true. So Abraham, okay, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael. God says, well, Isaac's coming. Wait a minute. And, we, and sometimes we see that today. But, but God, but, you know, you're, you're messing everything up. We finally have order in the home, and you're going to send something else our way. Listen, it's a serious thing when we talk about trusting God. It's a serious thing when we talk about walking and following God. Now, to make matters worse in that culture, the older son in that culture had the greater, the, the lion's share of rights, the lion's share of inheritance. But God's plan was that Isaac was going to be the firstborn. So you see, there's a conundrum here. And there's about a 14-year difference between Ishmael and Isaac. So there was strife in the home. It's not hard for us to figure this out. And that's the beautiful thing about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat stuff. It doesn't say, well, everything just worked out wonderfully when you disobey God. No, it tells us the problems that were in this home. 
You've got strife between the two boys, the two mothers. And this was all dumped in Abraham's lap because he should have known better. I think it's, it's interesting, and I, I, you know, as a young man, I, I come to Christianity, and, and it's taught, you know, you need to be the leader in the home. And the media has totally twisted what that means. It's not domination. It's spiritual leadership. And it's funny because I see guys who come into Christianity, and you have the wrong understanding of what leadership is. Listen, there's some decisions that happen in the home that my wife is like, talk to him. She's pointing to me. He's the man, he's the husband, and that's great because she gets to, and my wife's really good with taking responsibility, but you want to be the leader? It's a double-edged sword. You have to take the responsibility as well. Sarah's idea was foolish, but Abraham went along with it, and Abraham now was tasked as the leader to fix the problem. Adam and Eve, Eve had this idea. It was a bad idea. Adam went along with it, and God dealt with Adam and punished him because he he wasn't teaching his wife. He, he, he did something wrong that this happened, okay? Now, it, it's, it happens both ways, too. Of course, uh, we read about uh, Nabal, the foolish husband, who, who ticks off King David, and David's ready to kill him and wipe out the whole village. And the wife, who's a very smart and godly woman, she actually disobeys him, and she makes things right and makes peace with David and his men, saving her, her foolish husband's head and the rest of the village. So you, you see these things kind of happen, but... It's a problem when we go away from God's plans. That's, that's the, the moral of the story here. So let's look at the Apostle Paul, and he's saying to the Galatians, okay, we have our issues, and, and we see what religion says, and it's confusing. You go on the Internet, you log on to 20 different Christian sects, and they all say something different. So, so where's the answer? The answer's in the Scripture. And Paul said the same thing to the Galatians. You know, you guys are, you, you guys are getting off case you're, you're doing this thing with the law, and he's basically saying, so how do you maintain your salvation? Through your flesh, through your self-efforts? And again, that's what, that's what religion teaches, or by the grace of God. How is it guaranteed? Through your works or through the Holy Spirit as a guarantee? Now, you may say to me, but Pastor Joe, so what does that mean? Does that mean we become saved and we can become spiritual couch potatoes? We don't have to do a darn thing. Good works, you're saying that. No, 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 no. We have to understand the order. The order is we're saved by Christ's work on the cross. The good works we do are not to maintain our salvation, but it's because we're so thrilled that God saved us. You know, Jesus took the punishment on that cross, so I don't have to go to hell. That's an awesome thing. So good works, I want to do good works because I, I just want to please my daddy in heaven. That's my attitude. Not because I'm working towards something that Jesus already paid for. You see? It, the order makes a lot of sense in the Scripture, and that's why the Scripture twisters today and back then are so effective because they take little bits and pieces and they can make a case and a doctrine out of something that's just not there. And that's why, we need to, that's why you have Bibles there. So if I'm saying something off, and I've, I've been corrected by people before who were paying attention, and you know what? I fixed it on the, uh, on the Internet. You know, I, 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 it was a slip of the tongue. You got that Scripture wrong by two verses. I don't get offended. Correct me so that I can fix it. I don't want to teach weird stuff from the pulpit. I want to teach the truth. Verse 23. So Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Ishmael's birth represented human ideas and human plans. We got it, God. We got it. Isaac was born according to the promise. And Isaac represents God's plans. And God is not going to force himself on us. But if we walk with him, we should be listening to him. Verses 24 through 26 is, we see that the, the boys' births 
from two different women represent two different covenants. Hagar represents the law from that Mount Sinai. And this is Paul's allegory. He's assigning um, values. He's assigning meanings to each one of the symbols or the people in this allegory, which is based on something that was a true event. And this can only produce bondage. So what does that mean? So Hagar represents Mount Sinai. Well, Moses got the Ten Commandments. Well, wasn't that a good thing? Yes, it was. It was a good thing for a lot of reasons. Keeps order in society, uh, shows us that we're sinning, shows us that there's, there's a deficit of, of righteousness and that we need a Savior. The Lord does all these awesome things. It's kind of funny. My wife and I, we, <laughs> one of the things I was worried about, and this is almost 20 years ago when we got married, you, you think about silly things when you're young. Like, what if we run out of things to say after 10 or 20 years? My wife and I probably talk more now than we did when we were first dating. And we, we banter, we, we throw things back and forth, we take an argument and take, you know, we have a lot of fun together. So I had the foot surgery and I, I have this, this big clunky boot and it's a Saturday night, I gotta get out of the house. I can't lay in bed anymore, it's driving me crazy. So I, I gotta get out of the house, after about a week we go to dinner. And it's Saturday and it's about a six o'clock, so guess what, parking lots are full. And we're looking for a spot in one of our favorite restaurants. And she says, she says, well, you know, you are handicapped. You know, you could, I could imagine a judge saying, you know, you're, and so now we're having this hypothetical <laughs> about me going to court. <laughs> Just so you know, I didn't park there. <laughs> so, so we're having this conversation and I got to park really far away to make matters worse. I'm clunking it over to the door. Look, look, look. I, I'm like Captain Hook over here. Uh, I get to the door and they say it's an hour wait. I'm like, I'm not waiting an hour. So I clunked it back all the way to the car. We're talking and walking and we go to another restaurant and everything worked out fine. But we're having this hypothetical. And, and it's so cool because I thought of my Galatians teaching. I thought about the law. And the law is cold. The law has no mercy. The law gives no concessions. The law says, did you have the, and I could have gotten a temporarily handicapped placard. I'm like, well, I, I'm not going to be down that much, that, that much so I'm not going to even bother going through all the paperwork. But I could have got the placard and I would have been fine. However, if I didn't and I parked there and I went to court, would there be a handful of judges that might have had mercy and said, you know, whatever? Yeah, I'm sure there would be. But most of them would have said $200 pay at the window. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I said to my wife, the law... It, it's, it, it's, there's no feelings, there's no concessions, there's, it's the law. Is the law bad? No, the law is not bad. It keeps order in civil society, right? By the way, I'm not, I'm not here today to give out legal advice, so just, uh, just suffice it to say, I'm not admitting anything on tape. I did not park there. And that's the truth. God is my witness. Uh, so, so basically, then I started talking about the message, and I'm transferring from man's law to God's law. And God's law is good, but it, it, it had a particular purpose. Don't look to the law to make you feel good. Don't look for me to teach the Ten Commandments and feel great about yourself. You're not going to. The law shows us the deficit, and, but it's good. And it also keeps order in society. So it's, it's kind of funny that we were having this discussion. So from Mount Sinai, the law, this is what happened over time. So you go from Mount Sinai, right? And then the children of Israel run all the way around eastward. 
They come into the promised land. They cross westward across the Jordan. And eventually, King David takes Jerusalem. Then they set up the temple. And now the law is brought into the temple. And now the priests and the Levites and all the, the incense and the rites and the rituals and the sacrifices. So you see this transition from Mount Sinai because they're, you know, they don't have a home yet. When they get into Israel, into Jerusalem, so Mount Sinai transfers to Jerusalem. And now this is going on. But the law had an expiration date on it. The Bible tells us that the law was a tutor to Christ. Eventually God was going to send through the son of the promise, right? He was going to send Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Sacrifices stop. Temple eventually is shut down. And basically, we are saved by grace. And now the law is a, it's a nice thing. It's, it, it still applies. You still shouldn't murder. But it's not something that we're holding ourselves to. See, the more we're filled with the Spirit, the more we desire to please God. But what they were doing is they were forcing the people. Well, you, all your males have to be circumcised. You, you guys have to keep the Sabbath holy. So now they have all these burdens that are put back on them. So just to understand what's going on here. Verse 25, the, the transfer from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem, after the, the death of Christ, many Jews and the church was filled largely with Jewish believers, came to faith in Christ. However, the ones that didn't were still trying to hang on to the law. So he's looking at kind of the Jerusalem thing almost in a little bit of a negative in light of what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 26, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Again, let's look at these, the symbolism and the allegories. In other words, the Jerusalem, so there's a Jerusalem on earth, the physical location, and then there's, there's a Jerusalem from above. And what he's saying is that the covenant of grace through faith in Jesus Christ comes from heaven. God sent his son from heaven. Jesus spoke about being in heaven. In John 3, he spoke about coming down to the earth. He left his, his kingly estate because he's fully God to come and take a form, the form of a man so he could die for our sins. So you see this, this imagery about from above. Now here's incidentally in Revelation 21, if you read Revelation, God actually builds this beautiful city, the new Jerusalem. It's gorgeous. I mean, I haven't seen it, but from what I read, use your imagination. Uh, it's, it's, it's so detailed, gorgeous. It's about the distance from uh, New York to Florida, and it's, cube, it's cubed, it's cubical, it's three-dimensional. Amazing. When we see it, and it's gonna, the Bible says it's going to actually come down from heaven after he's fully prepared it. Pretty wild stuff, isn't it? I mean, I could go on for literally hours. That's why I have notes, because there's so much in here. I mean, God's word is really deep. Verse 26b, the Jerusalem above is what? The mother of us all. So let's think about this. You're sitting here this morning. Every second, we're getting closer to death. There's your, there's your encouraging message for the morning, Sunday morning. So as, as I'm snapping my fingers, we're just that much closer to our ultimate demise. Okay? You feel good? <laughs> Bible says when we're born again or we're born a second time spiritually, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, our spirit comes, becomes quickened to life. Now all of a sudden we become eternal beings. So the moment we step and our heart stops beating and our brain waves cease and we have what's called clinical death, we immediately step into eternity. There's no time lost. It happens in an instant. But that only happens if you're born again of the Spirit, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So you have these things going on, and this, this, 
belief in Christ gives us a unity. We talked about that about four or five Sundays ago, which brings us all together. It's a unifying covenant, hence the mother of us all. So we are all children of God when we believe in Jesus Christ. See, physical birth makes us sinners, bringing us to death. Spiritual birth makes us children of God, bringing us eternal life. Very simple concepts in the Bible to understand. Verse 27, this one um, I had a little difficulty with. Um, I called a Pastor Tom Dickerson, who's extremely smart, and we, we went back and forth, and we get it, but it's, it's, it's basically the Apostle Paul takes a page out of Isaiah 54 where he says, Rejoice, O barren, who do not bear. You who do not bear, break forth and shout. You who do not travail. For the desolate has many more uh, children than she who has a husband. You can look at this in the sense of Sarah. You can look at this in the sense of the Galatian church. Don't go backwards. Don't go back to the, the Hagar model. Stay with the Sarah model. Even though she thought she was barren, when she finally was able to uh, produce she produced pretty much through her womb a, a whole nation of believers. Um, so it's an encouraging thing. Again, we as Christians even, we see, we see the problems in our jobs. We see the problems in our relationships. We see the problems when we look at our bank accounts. But we don't see what's beyond that because God has not given us the ability to see the future. That's why we need to trust him. Sarah saw, I'm getting old, man. I mean, I'm way past childbearing years. And, and she she panics and she comes up with this alternate idea and God says, no, no, you don't understand. When you have that child, you're going to see what, what the fruit that comes out of that. But she, was, she panicked. And sometimes we panic. But we really have to trust God. See, time is, like, time is like the enemy with us. Especially when we're facing a Goliath in our life. You know? We want something to happen soon. And those seconds can feel like eternity. But you've got to trust God. Another layer to this is that the church had small beginnings versus the whole um, the, the, the Jerusalem and the spiritual seed. And, and the church looks so small compared to that. But in, in truth, the church bore, it seemed barren, but it bore so much fruit over time that it even dwarfed that spiritual system that eventually was destroyed in A.D. 70. Verse 28. So the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, now we brethren as Isaac, son of Sarah, as, as, as we brethren as Isaac was, we are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So in verse 20, uh, 28 and 29, you have a situation where there's a difference in age. Ishmael is 14 years older than Isaac, roughly. And you, you, you read the scripture, you go into Genesis, you find not only was there mocking, but there probably was bullying too. So it's a term in 2016 that we're all familiar with. And there was now real problems in the house. You thought there was problems with before, now the boys are getting older, or Ishmael's getting older, he has high expectations, Isaac is the son of promise, and he starts really picking on the kid. And Sarah's, Sarah's concerned for her, for her baby. And it causes a whole lot of craziness in the house, and... What he's trying to say is here is as Isaac, as sons of the promise, as sons of, of faith, as believing in grace, where Ishmael represents the flesh, it re represents self-effort. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, before Christ, spiritually, I can just speak for myself and I can tell you what the Bible says. Before Christ, and, and it was cool, I understood the Ten Commandments, I was in a religion, 
and I didn't kill anybody, and I didn't rob anybody, and I really felt good about that. So I, you know, I probably have a good chance as anybody else. But I was single-minded in what I wanted to do for the weekend, how I wanted to gratify my flesh, how I wanted to have a good time. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with that because I didn't kill anybody. And that's what people say. Well, I didn't kill anybody. You can't judge me. I'm not saying anything. I'm telling you what the Bible says here. And then when I become a believer, when you become a believer, now your, your spirit is alive. It's quickened. So now you have these competing forces that are going on inside of you. You have still the old nature, which is tied to the flesh. But you also have a new nature, a spirit nature, a, a way that God really closely communicates with you. And through an act of our will, sometimes we listen to the spirit and sometimes, unfortunately, we listen to the flesh. It's kind of like that old proverbial angel on the right shoulder, devil on the left. It's an oversimplification, but you get it. And, you know, bef before I was a Christian, it was cool. I, had, I planned my life, I planned my sin, and there was no problems. Now, I want to please God, but the old nature sometimes tries to creep up and, and get involved there. To me, it's like sometimes when you become a believer and you've got this war inside of you, it's almost like there's a WWF smackdown going on inside of you between the two competing forces. Well, you guys quit it out. Cut it out inside of there. You're making me crazy. But the truth is, the truth is we should be listening to the Spirit. The, the flesh is the old. We should be putting that off, okay? And what he's saying here versus with Jacob or with um, Isaac and Ishmael is this competing force. They, the flesh and the spirit can't coexist. They can't. One of them has to come out dominant. And hopefully we're listening to God and we're responding to the spirit. Verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? And this comes right out of Genesis. God says to Abraham, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So the last point was, is that there was so much turmoil that, that Abraham had to make a very difficult decision. And this was the fruits of his bad decision of going in with Hagar, taking a second wife and having a baby with this woman who wasn't his wife. And now he loved Ishmael, and this was very difficult for him. Genesis 16, 12, what God says about Ishmael and his descendants, he says right out of Genesis. Now, this is funny. Well, it's interesting because Jews, Muslims, and Christians all revere Genesis. Genesis is Genesis. He says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So God did provide. He, there was 12 princes that came through uh, Ishmael's line. Um, however, many in Islam today will trace their roots back to Ishmael. As a matter of fact, before, before they were called Muslims, they were called Ishmaelites. This is historical fact. Now, today Islam has over one billion adherents. So that means that the ethnicities are spread all over the world. Is, are all Muslims from Ishmael? No, that's ridiculous. I never want to paint with a broad brush because I think it's wrong. And I, I actually have friends who are Muslim, and we talk about the Koran, and we talk about the Bible, and they're, they're afraid of the ones that are the violent ones. And a lot of them come to the United States, to Western countries, to get away from the violence in their own countries. But it's interesting, whether it's ISIS or any of these other sects, they enjoy the violence. They, they thrive on the violence. When you start reading the scripture, or when you start reading the paper, they, they think they're doing God a favor by this, oh, things that we could never imagine ourselves doing to another human being. So, again, very interesting how the scripture does fulfill itself. Now, 
I'm just going to cover the first six verses in uh, five, and then we're going to be done for the morning. But So the Apostle Paul says, and look at this as one thought. Chapter delineations came much later, centuries later. In, in, in essence, so stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And they were trying to push this circumcision thing on the Galatian Christians. And some of them were going along with it. For you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So the Apostle Paul says before, and, and you know, what he just said was, he says to, to cast out, cast off. Then what does he say? Put on, okay, stand fast. And this is really great practical wisdom because the Bible's great like that. The Bible will say, you know, cast off anger. You have an anger problem, you've got to get deal with that anger. Cast off drugs and alcohol. Cast off pornography. Cast off any of the things that people struggle with okay, because it's not pleasing to God. And I remember, it was, in, it was in the 80s, remember the Just Say No campaign against drugs? It was, there was a weakness in that. The weakness was it said don't do this, but it didn't tell you what to fill it with, whether it's DARE programs or Just Say No or any other thing. When you take something out, you have to, it creates a void and it creates a spiritual vacuum and other things will come in. I know people that have quit drugs only because they followed a cult and now they're in some weird cult. They don't do drugs anymore, but their salvation is in question. So when we cast off and we take out, what do we put in? Jesus said, ask, pray to God, ask for the Holy Spirit. And as much as you ask for, he'll give you. That's what we need to be filling ourselves with. As Christians, we can't just expect our church, our pastor, our Christian friends to help us to get rid of stuff. We have to fill it with something. We have to plug up that void or that hole in a spiritual sense. So, stand fast. Um, one scene from the movie Risen was the Roman soldiers were going up the hill, and I've done the demonstrations with the shields and the swords, and then they had these cleats that they would dig in, and they were told not to give ground. And it's, it, was very, it was done very well. They're being attacked by people higher, throwing big rocks at them, and they're bouncing off the shields, and they do the testudo formation. But you see, he would, the, the, the uh, commander would give the commands and they would, they would advance. He'd give the commands and they would advance. And what happened was those that were attacking them had nowhere to go at one point. So they eventually get to the point where they're on top of them and then they attack them. But the commands were to stand fast. They were not to give any ground. Because if they kept pressing forward, eventually they would win the battle. So the Apostle Paul would see things in the world, and then he would make spiritual uh, applications to it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stand fast in what? Well, and what are we supposed to fill the void with? Well, I'll give you a few suggestions. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's plan in your life, and God's love. And I saved that one for last. And if you heard me pray this morning, I run into people that feel so down on themselves. And I'll tell you what, it, it, it saddens me. It's like they can accept God's love for everyone else but them. Whether it's something they did or something that was done to them. 
I, I want to encourage you, if that's you, God loves you. He does. He wants to, he wants to have a relationship with you. And, and there's a lot of people that do that. God's love is for everyone else but me. That's not true. Don't let the enemy lie to you. Okay? So, he, he says too, don't be re-entangled in the yoke of pretty much the religious bondage. In 2 Peter 2.20, the Apostle Peter tells us when we become saved not to get re-entangled in the world. Now, there is a yoke that we can put on. Remember, and I'm going to bring in a yoke at some point, but a yoke to an animal was bondage. If animals could talk and two oxen were in the field and they saw the farmer coming with the yoke, they'd say, Joe, one, one cow would say to the other, or one oxen, we're in trouble, here comes the yoke. And you know what this means. No, what does it mean? Well, he's going to put one side on you and one side on me, and we're not going to be able to make a break for it anymore because we're going to be kind of stuck together, and we're going to have to plow that man's field. That's if animals could talk. But the Apostle Paul is saying, don't be re-entangled with the yoke of bondage. And I want to encourage you in 2016, you say, well, we, I have people say all the time, well, we want to join the church. What do we have to do? You don't have to do anything. What do we have to give? You don't have to give anything. You people are weird. I'm not used to this, you know. But we, we're not, this, listen, if the Bible says it, don't do it, then why should we do it? We, want, we don't want to put a yoke on you. We don't want to make you oxen plowing in the field. We want you to be free because the Bible says the Bible wants you to be free. I'm just here to tell you what this says. I'm, I'm no genius. I'm just going along with what God's word says. Um, in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus speaks about what I call a faux yoke. It's not a real yoke. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says to every individual, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find for your souls, you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus wants to give us. Now, I do have to, a um, little caveat here. This isn't saying, and I know Christians today, they're baby boys. They say, well, what do you think of circumcision? Well, why are you doing it? For hygienic reasons. Then go ahead. This wasn't saying that circumcision is evil. It was saying that if you're, it just was part of the law. If you're, you know, motives are everything, aren't they? If we do a good deed out in public and, and no one's looking and we decide, nah, or maybe we go to good, do a good deed in public and it's, it's a busy street and people have camera phones and we're going to be on YouTube and we, and we help the elderly woman across the street. There's a heart issue there. You see what I'm saying? Motives determine everything in life. Motives are, come from the heart. So circumcision, not a bad thing. To force it on a person because they're trying to maintain their salvation through the law, that's a problem just so we understand that. Verse 4, he says, you have become estranged from Christ, you have fallen from grace. A lot of expressions we get from the scripture. Now remember, unfortunately sometimes today we hear the word used as, again, you're not worthy, you're fallen from grace. Let's look at it in its context. This isn't God that did this, they walked away from him. See, God is a constant. What was it, last week was Pi Day, P. 3.14, you know, my son can go, he can do it all the way down to the 50th digit, and I didn't believe him, and then he's, he memorized it, and he told me, and I'm like, oh, he's right. <laughs> P or pi, right? You want to find the, the circumference of a circle? You use, it's actually P in the Greek, but that's a constant. It doesn't change. 
God, in a spiritual sense, is a cosmic constant. He created everything. He's not going anywhere. So if we find ourselves moved away from God, it wasn't him that moved. He's a constant. He's always in the same place. He loves us. We have to say to ourselves, what did I do? And not say God's angry with me, but what did I do? And how can I get closer to him? Because he's always willing to take me back again. Keep that in mind. Okay, so just, just to, to wrap it up here, and, and I want to just give you a, one word on legalism before we close. Legalism. What does legalism look like today? Legalism is when you go into a church or a Christian community and there's that one person, you feel smothered. You feel strangulated. They have to tell you, they have to be everyone's teacher. They have to tell you right away what you're not wearing right and you, your mannerisms aren't right and you're ready for the, criti- the criticism. People who are legalists are critical spirit. But, so then you say, well, why would, why would... And I'm just telling you what I've experienced as a new believer and even through my Christian experience. You know, to me, that's the type of person, when a person comes into church, they leave the church and they never come back because they feel suffocated. You know, can you just love me and accept me for who I am? Right? What's the draw? The draw is that as you're accomplished in the world, so some of you are, are great skiers, some of you are great uh, mathematicians, some of you have just all these different, you know, you, you look at any cross-section of a church and you guys have a cross-section of talents. Somebody, you, you all have something that God blessed you with. When you get into Christianity, the draw of legalism is that, is that you get to be the star that you are in the world. You get to come into the church and, well, I have more scripture memorized than you. Well, well when I go home, my kids are, are perfect and, and this is how we do things in our home. And basically, you, you start to feel like you're less than. Wow, this is, this, is, this is some perfect Christian. Listen, we all sin. We all, we're all flawed and let nobody tell you anything different. But the legalist can come into the church and, and excel. And they can do the same thing in the world that they're now doing in the church. That's what legalism looks like. And even as a pastor and even as a Christian for as long as I have been, I feel uncomfortable in front of legalistic people. I'm waiting for them to pick something apart in me. You know, and it's just, I don't want to be around people like that. I just don't. So, I mean, honestly, just some new, new faces I see here this morning. When you come into a church, what do you want to know? You want to know, will I be accepted? Will these people love me? And if you believe the answer to that question is no, you're not coming back. I guarantee it. Everybody wants to be loved. Even gang members, it's a dysfunctional love. But if maybe it's the love they didn't get from their family, now they join a street gang. Okay? So, there you go. Let's just close it with this. Christ came to save us from the realm of the unsaved, where we have to face God for our sins in the form of judgment and eternal punishment. That yoke, that was the yoke that I wore for 20-something years. That was the yoke of my self-directed life. I was a slave to my own desires. When you come into the church, the worst thing that can happen is you replace one yoke for the church's yoke. So now you put on the church yoke or the yoke of legalism and now you're a slave to all these rules and regulations and there's no freedom. 
you can't breathe. You ever been in a room with a bunch of stuffy people and you just got to go outside and get some fresh air? Now Jesus is yoke. This is the beautiful thing. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden. Who, who, when you go through this world, see what's going on around you, doesn't feel at times that they're laboring, that they're laden down, right? And I will give you rest. And that word rest is, is not only a spiritual rest, but it's a psychological rest. It's an emotional rest. And I've seen people in counseling that come in and their, their trapeziuses are all tight and their shoulders are up. And after a while, the scripture and prayer and, and just counseling, the trapezius drop. And you just see that rest. This is what Jesus gives. This is what he wants for everybody here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Imagine putting on Jesus' yoke and, and you're like, did you fasten the straps yet? Yeah. Well, Jesus, I don't feel anything. It's not heavy. Yeah. Get used to it. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, for my yoke, it's an easy yoke, but my burden is light. Have you come here this morning with a burden? Have you come in here this morning that we can't see it, but you have some yoke on your back? Jesus wants to change that. I want to ask you, do you think God's love is, is outside of your realm, of your reach? Do you feel it's not for you? You know, when I taught on Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 about that, what I just read about what Jesus says, five people came forward to receive the Lord. And I knew in my spirit that there were some that were going to come up because I knew that Jesus has the power through his word to penetrate the force fields that we have, the defenses, and he has the power to, to penetrate our hearts with his love. And honestly, we can go on resisting that, but why would you? This is God we're talking about. So I want to encourage you, before you leave this place, take that yoke of burden off of you, pick up Christ's yoke, and walk with him. And you know what? It's something you'll never, you'll never regret. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.